Hello and welcome to Tigers by the Fire, a podcast from Holy Cross High School in New Orleans. Today, we're going to be looking at the firebombing of Tokyo. This was a controversial decision made by the U.S. Armed Forces at the end of World War II, where the Army Air Force essentially dropped firebombs on the city of Tokyo and other cities in Japan, leading to mass destruction and casualties. And our two guests today are Kyler Van Camp. Hi. And John Suffren. Hello. And they're going to lead off our discussion with some statistics about this event, and then we'll get into a little bit more of the controversies at the end. So I'll, I'll give it off to Kyler. Yeah, so the firebombings of Tokyo are considered one of the deadliest bombing campaigns in human history. Around 89,000 uh, if you go off the American number, and 144,000 if you go off the Japanese fire department, Tokyo fire department number. So Kyler, why do you think those numbers are different? I think they're different because the U.S. having a high number in, in like civilian casualties is very bad, obviously. And I feel that the United States is trying to lessen it, while Tokyo or Japan, for example, might be trying to push the limits on it for a, a court case we we're going to be talking about in the future and for other negotiation reasons. Yeah, and that's not the only time countries have disputed death numbers in World War II, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you guys, right before we got on, were talking about uh, Nanking with Japan and China. Those numbers are completely debated by the two countries. So that's not really a big surprise. But you, you can go back. Or John, yes, and Also, because of the sheer nature of just fire in general, is that there, can't, there cannot be a specific like death toll. Because you really don't know if you're finding a dead body or just burnt wood. Because at a certain point, there's just so many, yeah. and it's so charred remains that you don't even know what you're looking at anymore. And a lot of the estimates actually come off the uh, average citizen rate per uh, per block, and they would go block by block and determine that as opposed to like seeing the bodies and counting them, because some of the bodies are like so burned beyond recogni- recognition. And that's why we talk about like in war, they tend to give these round numbers because they're really just estimates. It's not down to the exact person all the time. Uh, And in this, you're right. They're calculating uh, by the people living in a certain block at the time these bombs were dropped. And that's where the numbers get disputed. And obviously the United States in American schools, I mean, how rarely do we ever see pictures in textbooks of the Tokyo firebombing? I mean, the only time you really see pictures in a normal U.S. history textbook would be the nuclear bombs. But other than that, they, they tend to not show these, these events. And through these bombings, it left around 100, not 100, 1 million homeless. Some estimates range to be 1 million, 250,000. Others is below 1 million. So the average is about 1 million. 10,000 acres destroyed. 267,000 buildings destroyed. And for comparison, Hiroshima and Nagasaki had around either... 129,000 to 226,000 killed in total, and around 20,150 of those were soldiers. And some other stats, this occurred on March, the night of March 9th to 10th at around 12.04 a.m., I believe. 1945. 1945. And for America, they had 325 bombers, 279 of them which actually dropped bombs. We'll get to reasons why some couldn't later. 
and Japan had 638 anti-aircraft with 90 fighter pilots, most of which were ineffective because it was nighttime. And America, they lost 14 aircraft about, like, completely. 42 of them were broken, and 96 of the aircrew were killed in action or missing in action. Yeah, and I think this this event, too, is kind of the culmination of the end of World War II. Obviously, March 1945, uh, the Allies have seen kind of the resistance Japan is putting up. And so there is just this re-engaged effort to destroy the infrastructure of Japan and kind of take away the will of fighting for them. And, and that's kind of where this whole strategy kind of went forward. John? And what is really interesting about the whole statistics and the fact that America only lost uh, 14 aircraft out of 325 was the fact that the B-29 was recently developed. And it was at the perfect altitude to where the anti-aircraft guns could not actually like be effective against them. And because they also did it at night, the fighter pilots also couldn't attack. So it was a perfect opportunity for America dis- to uh, display its strength and innovation at the same time. Also, I think something else to think about this is that the citizenry, their morale went down by a considerable size after this event. And that was part of the general's plan as well in doing this. Yeah, the B-29 has definitely made it possible. I mean, you have a plane that can carry a heavier payload, travel further. Um, I mean, they're, they're massive in scope uh, comparatively to the, the flying fortresses of the past and, of course, the Liberators. And, and you're right, Kyler, uh, to your point, the, the whole idea of bombing civilians is to decrease morale. And we saw that at the beginning of the war. Mm-hmm. The Japanese did it to the Chinese. The Germans did it, uh, Rotterdam, obviously, in the Netherlands. And then, of course, the Allies take on that, that same stroke. And we saw it work in Germany, and we're hoping this could, you know, stop an invasion of Japan, which we, I think the United States was very fearful of uh, because of the amount of casualties that would inevitably happen as a result. Also, with how y'all were talking about the bombers, I know LeMay ordered that a lot of the weaponry and a lot of the insides of the bombers be removed, except for the tail gun. Yes. to make the airplanes lighter and conserve more fuel and be able to have a bigger have, have payload. Yeah. yeah, and so... It's just they uh, basically maximize the efficiency of the killing potential of these instead of actually defending the bombers themselves. Yeah. So and so uh, for people who are listening to this who may not quite understand what we mean by firebombing, let's start off with one: why would firebombing be effective in a city like Tokyo? And then what goes into actual like firebombs? So. Firebombs were effective in the city of Tokyo because Tokyo was made out of wooden and paper houses. This was, uh, it was tested on other villages in Japan. No, like they would say like village A, they would try firebombing and they realized that firebombing was way effective. So, and a firebomb, the ones that were used in the B-29s at the time, it was an E-46 cluster bomb, which carried 38 napalm M-69 bomblets. And the M69 is incendiary, made out of magnesium or phosphorus or petroleum jelly. And all of these are extremely sticky substances, so they tend to stick on and it would burn at like, I believe, like a thousand degrees. And they were dropped in clusters to connect flames and cause an even bigger fire. So the original fires actually wouldn't even cause, they caused a small fire, but whenever there was wind combined with it and the close proximity of the houses in Tokyo, led to large fires. Yeah. What else was interesting is that the incendiary bombs would actually punch a hole through the roof and then plant in the ground. 
and it would light up three to five seconds later. So not only are you just having fire, but it's basically being created from the bottom up, and that will sustain a lot more casualties than a fire from up top. Yeah, because the fire, the heat obviously moves up and catches more of the house on fire. And this was this idea of firebombing was taken from Germany, but it was also taken from earlier bombing campaigns of Tokyo. And Germany, they did not use as many incendiary bombs as they did in Tokyo. But after they saw how effective they would be in a wooden and paper society, they used it against them. Yeah, and this also comes after the firebombing of Dresden, too, um, which is, again, another hotly debated event just like this one. Uh, and it leads to the mass destruction of civilians. And I think that's the important thing that we recognize, too, is that this isn't a targeted military base. This is the you know largest city, capital city in Japan, uh, and that's what's being bombed here. So uh, let's talk about the actual attack. Is that, yeah, that's what's next on the, the schedule. So, Yeah, so the attack began at around 12.08 a.m. local time on March 10th, 1945. It lasted about for two hours and 40 minutes. There was so much smoke that the bombs were not as precise as expected to be, but they still were able to get the job done in terms of a general amazed accomplishments, or goals rather. And within 30 minutes of the fire starting, uh, Tokyo's fire department was not able to like contain the fires because there was a wind and the winds connected and they just kept growing and... In returning to, well, first of all, in, in returning to the marinas, like for where they launched out of, many of the planes trailed ash due to the amount of fire that they were dealing with. Yeah, and that's uh, actually a really interesting point because uh, there was so much fire in Tokyo at the time that it caused such a great updraft that it pushed B 29s off their course and crashed. And that's where you actually see most of the aircraft losses from is because of this updraft that the fire was so great, it pushed the B-29s, which were already high, very high in altitude, off course, just because of the amount that was there. Yeah, I mean, and this is creating basically firestorms in Tokyo. Yeah. And, and that's the, I think the part that is hard to imagine is, is kind of what's going on on the ground. And then when you factor in the fact that this, this fire is causing the planes to actually lift up thousands of feet above the, the surface, I mean, that's, that's an absolutely crazy scenario to kind of take in. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, citizen, the citizenry? And what they dealt with was very interesting. So the fires, if they did not burn the victims, they would probably smother the victims because the fire, it, uh, it drew out oxygen from the places they were sheltered. And there was like canals, low canals that people would get into burning. And they thought that they would be safe, but then the fire would just suffocate them from drawing out all the oxygen. And these canals were around the city. And we actually have one of our pictures is of a group of people burn charred and on the side of the canal and uh it's actually uh pretty uh horrific because we say eighty-eight thousand dead but that doesn't include all the wounded and injured because uh the united states strategic bombing survey stated that forty-one thousand were injured but the Tokyo Fire Department says 125,000 were injured. And that can scale from anything from burns to almost like losing limbs. And so it's not just the deaths that is so catastrophic in this case. It's also the injury it caused to families and everybody who was living in Tokyo at that time. Yeah. 
And I think what's important too to kind of understand is that this stuff happens in the the actual firebombings and the destruction of these cities. This is only a day. I mean, this isn't like this a, a bombing campaign like we've seen before where they bomb for, you know, two to three weeks. This is just simply a night. And that's the destruction that kind of happens. And, and I think, like you guys were saying uh, before, the nuclear bombs are horrific in their own scale, but this is arguably just as big as that. Yeah. And uh, it was it's pretty horrific because American commanders such as LeMay and Arnold considered these massacres to be a success due to the amount of destruction that the bombs caused. And uh, like the aspect of this affecting morale could be seen in the soldiers as well as civilians because not only were civilians dying, but it was their families and soldiers' families. And basically, the soldiers knew what they were getting into, but I guess there's no way they could comprehend their families being involved in this war as well. And I think it goes along with the promise that you know we saw with Germany and we see it with Japan, where this was never supposed to reach their, their homeland. And now all of a sudden, it's right on their doorstep. And the suffering is unimaginable. And you're right. I mean, you know, Japan is not going to let a lot of soldiers who are overseas hear news about this. They're going to try and keep it as quiet as possible. But it's also way too big. And to your point about the United States, that goes along with the war effort, right? Uh, the, the war effort is to destroy the infrastructure and the will of, of the Japanese to fight. And so they factor in the destruction of all these buildings as, as, as a victory. Um, and it obviously doesn't sound great. Now, but I mean that was how the war was fought. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, it was really a good question whether it shortened the war or not. And I actually have a quote from uh, Tammy Davis uh, Biddle in the Cambridge History of the Second World War, in which it says the Tokyo Raid marked a dramatic turn in the American air campaign in the Far East. Following on the heels of many months of frustration, it loosed the full weight of American industrial might on the faltering Japanese. And it was just a huge propaganda victory for the United States because it decimated the enemy's capital city. And it showed that we can destroy their capital city at any time we wanted to. Yeah, it was kind of like that picture that was posted at the end of the world, the war with MacArthur and the emperor and how like much taller he was. And it was posted out to all the citizens to show that he was not a god, the, the emperor that is. Yeah, and whenever you, you look at these types of uh, events, especially the bombings, and the U.S. making kind of showings of how big they are, I, we often forget, and I know, look, teaching U.S. history, looking in U.S. history textbooks, they do a bad job of actually fully showing students how much larger the U.S. armed forces was by the end of the war. I mean, you're talking the largest air, air force in the world, largest navy, and they are just pulverizing the Japanese. And this is simultaneously while they're opening up fronts in other locations in the Pacific and while we're pushing into Berlin uh, in Europe. So uh, I, I think it, it definitely, you're right, it showcases the ability of the United States in an industrialized setting to completely, you know, weigh uh, you know, lay waste to to the Japanese uh, people, and that's the I think scary part about it. But that that's definitely a great quote uh, that you got out yeah. of there. And uh, it's not just like whether that, but they were also very effective because they actually cut the industrial military production by half. And the main reason because of that was because it stopped people from working due to mass homelessness. They had to take care of their families first. And they were unable to produce for the war effort. And that uh, really affected Japanese production for weapons and 
other like aircraft? I feel that this is a central question that a lot of historians debate over: is was it effective, and if it was effective, do the costs of it outweigh the effectiveness of it? And in my opinion, I believe that the targeting of civilians in this case and in other many other cases, and especially with firebombing, so one of the like most gruesome ways to die and attack a civilian is wrong. And we'll go on to discuss this, but I believe that it was a war crime as well. And I think it's, it brings up some interesting questions. I, I like how you guys are ready to debate this because uh, this is a fun topic. This is why we have these types of discussions. Um, it is also you have to put yourself into 1945, right? Um, it's very hard to have sometimes these discussions in a mindset um, that is not in a world that is in war, right? And so uh, to Kyler's point, and I'm going to let you, John, because I know I think you have slightly different opinions, um, and, and we can kind of talk about this. Was this a, uh, a justifiable event? Um, we'll get to the war crime after um, th- that, that type of uh, conversation. But, uh, John, what, what do you think about it? I believe uh, it was a justifiable event. It was terrible, and by no means am I saying that it was okay. But I think the end did justify the means because if you just look – it cut industrial military production – by half. America was gaining its industrial prowess, whereas it was cutting uh, the Japanese industrial uh, prowess by half in Tokyo. It also killed 100,000 people, civilians. Uh, yes, but those were they were workers and in the factories. And it says right here, the purpose, it destroyed shadow factories, which were factories like within the cities that were hidden amongst the civilians. And so you could not target one without targeting the other. And... Yes, unfortunately, it was bad, but it, it also was that propaganda victory for the United States. It really boosted our troops' morale because at this time, America does not like war. Historically, they have never been a country to want war, and, uh, and we were already faltering at this point in 1945 because we we're seeing the death tolls. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we could show we can destroy their capital city without severe casualties is immensely important for the United States war effort. But did it actually help cause Japan to surrender? And I I think in that regard, the answer is no, because obviously they didn't surrender until uh, much later in 1945 after the uh, atomic bombs. Was it after the firebombings Japan negotiated? Um, That's pretty interesting because uh, it actually – the emperor became more involved with peace talks after the firebombings. At least he became more involved in diplomatic, like, just relations among the world. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but I still do not agree with you. I believe that this may sound controversial, but soldiers first, not civilians. Civilian death should be avoided at all costs because a lot of these civilians are being forced to do this by the emperor. Well, and I think the fear, uh, and that's a good point, both of you guys. I think the fear, too, the U.S. government also has is that if uh, the United States does invade Japan, which is the, the ultimate goal, right, is a landed invasion of Japan, is how many of those civilians will be uh, drafted in, right, put into service? How many of them will be used? How many of them will uh, end up being used either willingly or unwillingly in the war effort? And so uh, it, it's a tough decision because you're right, like you are killing civilians and these are men, women, children. There are schools in Tokyo that are destroyed. There are hospitals, nursing homes. Uh, 
fire doesn't discriminate, right? It indiscriminately kills everyone uh, in its path. And so for the, you know, the generals making these decisions, um, this also goes along with how race played in this war too. I mean, right? These two countries are very much racially opposed to each other. Um, and I think that that is a, uh, a factor in some of the decision making that, that goes along with this. But that's some, some very good points. John, do you want to add? Um, <clears throat> not really. Um, <laughs> I got my uh, I You're saving your points for the, for the next part of the question? I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, why don't you read but, us the... Uh, but the other thing with Japan is it's very interesting because it's we, we're talking about citizens and how it should only be soldiers we should target. But we like the Japanese civilians would be willing to die for the emperor because they saw him as a god. So I understand we're killing men, women, children indiscriminately. However, how many of those men and women would actually surrender in the case of like without this? So like because they are blindly devoted to the emperor at this time. And so this, yeah, this like brainwashing and fear, I believe, was seen on was it Saipan? Whenever, mm-hmm. the, yeah, whenever the the citizenry would jump off because of the fear instilled by the Japanese, jump it off cliffs in, in Okinawa. We we see it a little later. That's after this. But uh, the other thing too is, does the Japanese government know the full uh, scale of how the war has tipped? Because um, the war has has decisively tipped toward the United States by this point in time, and so this is also showing the civilian based government of Japan. Uh, that the United States can do this whenever it wants. I mean, it, it, I mean, you talked about it before minimal losses in terms of aircraft and personnel uh, in a bombing campaign this big. But let's uh, let's go to uh, let's see. We had a question here about war crimes, um, and I think this is an interesting interesting topic because war crimes obviously are you know debated, and we, we put two different uh, tribunals together after the war. Uh, Tojo obviously goes on trial for this, and he's very critical of the United States uh, during during his uh, captivity over this stuff. So I guess the question you guys had, and Kyler, you already alluded to your answer, uh, is this a war crime or not? So definition of a war crime under Article 8, Section 2B, 1 and 2, is intentionally directing attacks against the, the civilian population as such or against individual civilians not taking direct part in hosti- hostilities. Intentional or intentionally directing attacks against civilian ob- objects, that is, objects which are not military objectives. And the question I posed to you, John, was, was the schoolroom a military objective or was the hospital a military objective? Uh, no, it was not. But the interesting thing about uh, this is because this was developed actually after World War II because of what happened during World War II. I, firebombings was a terrible thing. And uh, it's like, as I, I have a quote from the Prime Minister of Japan in 2007, and he said, it is difficult to argue that the raids were illegal under international laws of the time. So by today's standards, yes, it would be defined as a war crime. Okay. However, okay. then it, is not, it was not a war crime. Okay, what about the Genocide Convention? It was after World War II. And yeah, was, was that not a crime? <laughs> okay. That was different. These are the bombings are incompatible with humanitarianism, which is one of the foundations of international law. I understand that, but under laws at the time, it was not an eradication of an entire group of people. It was it was terrible, but 
on at that time it was not a war crime. So I think the point John is trying to make is that the genocide tribunals, uh, which dealt with different forms of genocide, some in the Asian Pacific and then some, of course, in Europe with the Holocaust, uh, dealt with the attempted eradication of certain groups with a uh, intense uh, pointed method to do that. And these bombings, I don't think, meet that criteria. Not for genocide. Yeah, not for genocide. I, I agree with that. Yeah, but, but I like how you're playing devil's advocate and getting John a little uh, a little amped up here. Um, because, you know, look, guys, it, and it's fun that, that you guys are disagreeing with this because, quite frankly, uh, a lot of historians have argued about this. Uh, I know in modern context, people argue about this all the time. Uh, but I do want to stress, again, you know, when you look at civilian deaths, um, there is something to, you know, 1945, uh, what are the thought processes going into the, the bombings, right? Um, ultimately, the goal of the United States is to end the war as quickly as possible, right? The, the War Department's brief and their belief is that if they can end the war quicker with more destruction, that ultimately saves more lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of where their thought process is. Is there some revenge part of this yeah, I mean, inevitably. Um, but I think by this point, we may have probably been past that. Um, also, real quick, I'd just like to clarify. I was not referring to the Japanese, the firebombings took U.S. genocide. I was referring to the uh, Nazi killing of Jews and other ethnic groups as the genocide. That's what I was referring to with the genocide convention and the acts and treaties signed upon regarding that. Yep. And I wasn't referring to it. What's interesting sure. is that, <clears throat> we, yes, we're blaming... America for the fire bombings, and yes, it was America who dropped the bombs. But also, the Japanese government also has a part to play in this because uh, the prime minister again said in 2007 that if the if the fire bombings would not have occurred if Japan had surrendered when they knew loss was inevitable. So, also, I wanted to bring this up. Japan knew that we were going to attack. The U.S. was going to attack. So, why wouldn't they? evacuate Tokyo. And I mean, it's kind of like the same thing with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I believe, right? Weren't that didn't know the U S didn't. No. So we, we do give forewarning with with the nuclear bombs that we can destroy a whole city, but like there's no direct city. Yeah. And and they don't exactly believe us too. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, that, that they don't think that these things can really occur until they actually happen. And, uh, as far as the government, right, you have people like I think you're kind of alluding to who are clinging on to power who, you know, realistically for their people by 1945 should probably be negotiating an armistice if they can. But keep in mind, the United States' approach to that negotiation is an unconditional surrender, which Japan will have no part of because an unconditional surrender means, hey, prime minister who's negotiating this, you're on trial for war crimes, right, which is what ends up happening. So there are a lot of difficulties, I think. Uh, that go along with it. And it's not an easy decision-making uh, process, I think, at all. But it definitely makes for one of the more horrific events. And it's not the only one. This is one of a dozen cities that have the, the large Japanese cities that, that get firebombed. So uh, do you guys have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Not really, except like the after effects of this were tremendous and that Tokyo didn't experience an economic growth until ni- the late 1950s. And that just goes to show this was done in 1945, so a minimum of 10 years, and the the city has still not 
come back to what it had been before these firebombings, which is very interesting. And it only really came back because of U.S. involvement, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of people forget that after the war, the United States goes through a huge humanitarian effort to help feed Japanese citizens who are homeless and starving, largely due to U.S. bombing. So it does create a kind of a weird cycle there. Um, well, thank you guys, uh, and thank you anybody who's listening to Tigers by the Fire. Uh, we'll have another episode coming to you shortly. So thank you.